This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good morning. You all sleepy like me a little bit? Good morning. So, this week we are um, studying the second half of our lesson on Abraham and Sarah. And um, I wanted to start. Last week, someone in my group brought up in the middle of our discussion um, a really interesting, great point. And I didn't ask her permission beforehand, so sorry, group. (laughs) Um, But she brought up the fact that... um, Isn't it kind of interesting that in the account that we're reading, God apparently shows up in this physical way? And isn't that just a little bit, like, weird? Because I don't have that in my realm of experience, you know. And um, her reaction was kind of like, what's up with that? And, I mean, what a good, honest observation, right? It's kind of this elephant in the room. Um, And it would be really weird if we didn't notice that. But what stuck with me for the rest of the day was not her observation, but the reaction that kind of happened in me and in a couple of the other ladies in my group. And it was a way that we kind of just leaped forward with an answer for her to try and explain that discrepancy. And it kind of bugged me for the rest of the day because I saw in myself, maybe not so much in the other ladies, but in myself I saw this tendency that I've observed is really common in American evangelical Protestant circles. And that's this felt need to defend the Bible against any questions. Um, There are obvious and understandable reasons why this is so, and we don't need to get into that. But um, since it's the beginning of the year, I just wanted to kind of start out and say that it's okay to read the Bible and be a little weirded out. Abraham, there's a lot of stuff in his story if you dig into it, like the whole smoking pot going through ripped up carcasses of animals. and like There's a lot of stuff that's really, really weird to our ears today. Um, It's okay to not be able to relate to something in the Bible. Do you know that I hated the Psalms for pretty much all of my childhood teenage years? And that's probably because, I, unlike King David, I just did not relate to being in a pit surrounded by enemies who wanted to kill me. That was just like, all right, drama? Like, how often does that seriously happen to the average person? So the closest thing that I had to relate to were the cool girls at school who never acknowledged my existence, And it was a real stretch of the imagination to go from that to I can count all my bones, my life is poured out like water, like all of that kind of stuff. Um, So I couldn't relate to the Psalms. Um, It's more than okay to have questions. And more than that, if someone you know has a question about the Bible, it's not always your responsibility to find them an answer. I know that there's this verse about being ready in season and out of season to be able to give a reason for our faith, but our faith doesn't rest on having an expert knowledge of theology, Greek verbs, or ancient Middle Eastern customs. And if you jump too quickly to try and rescue someone from their questions, you might actually be depriving them of the opportunity to wrestle with something much deeper. 
And you're also depriving them of the satisfaction of having God answer for himself. So I just wanted to kind of, hopefully, that's just like everyone can take a big deep breath and realize that's where we're starting from. That's the place where we're coming from, and we're all in this together. So um, anyway, let's start, and I'm going to pray for this lesson too. Um, Heavenly Father, um, we just want to honor you today. We want to know you. We want to spend time with you. And what we know of you draws us to love you. And the fact that we love you draws us to honor you, to want to honor you. So I pray that you would be honored in my words, um, in our group time today, in, in the way that you use your word to change our hearts. And I pray that that would bring forth fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, so I did this PowerPoint presentation, and I don't have the latest version of my notes. So um, I'm going to be looking back up here now and then. Um, I just wanted to start off by admitting that, as I said before, Abraham's story is not exactly the easiest story to relate to. So if you skip to the next slide, there he is, um, kind of a weird picture there, right? He's about to try and um, sacrifice Isaac. And I love how artists, like, render some of these weird stories. This was actually not the weirdest picture that I came across on Google. There were actual, literal, um, like, drawn cartoons of this happening. And I was like, that just... Like, you want to see that in the Sunday school, you know, material or something like that? That's a little bit weird, but I kind of love the, uh, the picture of the ram there. Who's like, okay. Anyway, um, how does someone from our world, and this is kind of our world, right? We've got family, technology, chaos, economic crisis, consumerism, internet, all that kind of stuff, Starbucks. That's kind of the world that we operate in. How do we relate to this world? Um, we have up in the upper left-hand corner, that's a picture of Gilgamesh slaying lions. Um, Gilgamesh was kind of like an epic hero of Sumerian culture, I think. Um, and then we have a picture of what is estimated Ur. I think that's Ur, the city that Abraham originally came from. Um, and then underneath, you can see there's one of the sort of prototype um, temples of the day. Very, very um, different, kind of strange. Um, so this is, from my guesstimation of Google, a little bit more of what Abraham's world looked like. Now, the focus of today's study was on God's promises to Abraham, and we don't have time to study Abraham's entire life. That wasn't the focus of the study. But I did want to ground this discussion in some sense of a historical context because if we don't, I think that the language that we use can lead us into making assumptions about the text that we may or may not be there. Um, for example, there's, there's two really big themes that we're going to be talking about, God's promises and waiting. And to start out with promises, I mean, what a great word, right? Um, we're going to talk about the promises God made to Abraham. And when we think about promises, we think, butterflies and rainbows and happily ever after and you know fairy tales kind of stuff but really the word we're kind of going for is covenant and a covenant is much more like an alliance or a treaty that's made between a king and a vassal and it outlines in legal terms sort of what each party owes the other to be able to maintain the peace um 
There's a lot more we could go into with that, but let's just say that the promise of a son to Abraham meant something very different than a child means to you or me, right? Um, he's living in this age of patriarchy and tribalism um, where those things represent security. And so he's not necessarily just wanting the pitter pat of little feet in his house. Um, a son means something very different to him. And that is okay, by the way. Um, I doubt that you or I would find it particularly meaningful to know that we're all going to have thousands and thousands of descendants. Okay. I care a lot more that my two kids are going to grow up to love Jesus and to please stop going outside to play in their socks. Um, learn what tissues are for. Stop hating each other. You know, stuff like that. Um, number two, waiting. Abraham was 75 when God first appeared to him. He was 100 when Isaac was born. That is a long, long time to wait for a baby. Um, And if that isn't bad enough, because we think about us in our instant culture today, how long do you like to wait for anything? The stoplight to change or for your coffee to be done or, you know, things like that. How long do you like to wait for your internet browser to load up or whatever. Uh, We live in this instant age, so waiting, you know, we're a little bit more impatient with things like that. But besides that, if you look in the book of Hebrews, um, I'm sorry, that was in my other notes, so I'm just going to have to kind of say this from memory, but it talks about in the hall of faith, how Abraham and Sarah are listed in there and then all their descendants. And, and it kind of culminates with this thought of all these people to whom God had made promises and they died without receiving their promises. And all of that was because God had something greater in store. And what was that? So that we could be wrapped into the church, God's people so that we could benefit. God had this bigger picture, and so people died not receiving their promises. And it's not that they never will. I mean, God's viewpoint of things is not just limited by our days here on earth. There are going to be some promises that are not fulfilled until heaven or when Christ comes back. So we just need to kind of realize that that is the context within which God operates. Um, So just kind of keep that in mind. So the next slide that we have here, this is not like specifically Abraham or Sarah, but I kind of love it. In my imagination, I kind of imagine them to be, this is like a royal couple in Sumerian culture. And in my imagination, I just just look at them and I go, oh yeah, see how they're looking at each other. And it makes me think of... um, Abraham and Sarah as this kind of, you know, happy couple um, together. Because, like, like they're just, their whole world is kind of wrapped up in each other. I don't know. That's my little imagination into it. Nothing historical there. But, but I wanted to give you a picture, okay, to start from. So what can we learn from the way that God rewrote Abraham and Sarah's story? Um, and, yeah, I'm going to need to kind of go on with that. We... We know from our lesson and from reading in there that God shows up and he tells Abram to leave 
the place where he is before with his family, and he's supposed to go to a land that God is going to show him. And he doesn't say where this land is, which is the number one thing I probably would want to know. And he makes these series of promises. He says he's going to make Abraham's name great. He'll bless anyone who blesses him, and he'll curse anyone who curses him. And as time goes on, you start to learn something really important, and that's that um, God's promises for Abraham are bigger than even Abraham knows. And that's a big point in our lesson, that God's plans for us are bigger than we guess. Um, The study did a great job of kind of consolidating these promises into a people, a place, and a presence. And for Abraham... Like I kind of mentioned before, patriarchy and tribalism offered this source of security in a very uncertain world, right? Um, It wasn't just that Abraham felt alone in the world and he wanted to have children. He was 75 years old and survival in the ancient world was really hard. Um, So, and I mean, even thinking about it, it was like, with the assurance of God's protection everywhere Abraham goes, um, he's kind of convinced that someone's going to attack his tents in the middle of the night and murder him and steal his wife because she's pretty. So evidently that's a thing in the ancient world. Um, So patriarchy and tribalism offer this source of security. Place, um, combined with descendants, this equaled permanent wealth in the ancient world. Um, That was also a really interesting point for me to kind of learn in there. And presence, I find it um, pretty interesting to learn that in the ancient world, people used to believe that if you knew the name of a god, that gave you access to the god's power. And there's kind of an interesting yes and no. There's a little tiny bit of that truth because um, God can't be controlled but yet as he is revealing himself to Abraham, and if you, if you look in the text, there's, there's three different names that he ends up revealing to Abraham, that he is El Elion, El Shaddai, and Jehovah Jireh, creator and possessor of all things, all-powerful and all-sufficient, and the Lord who sees or will see to it. Um, so as God is revealing himself to Abraham, he is showing him these different aspects of who he is. Now, all of these promises in and of themselves are fine, but the more that Abraham is coming to know God, the more he's seeing that God's purposes are running deeper than, um, than he can know. So that first promise about Abraham wants his family lineage to prosper and to grow. And God says, yes, I want to bless you, but I want to bless the nations. And that people word, I mean, Abraham is probably thinking tribe. And God is saying all the tribes of the world. I want to bless through you. Abraham's looking for permanent wealth, and God says that's all well and good, but I want to give you eternal wealth. So eventually they have to look forward to a heavenly city, as it says in Hebrews. And Abraham wants a personal relationship with God, and God says, yes, I want a personal relationship with you too, but that means that I'm God and you're not. So things are going to run a little bit differently than you expect. And what this means practically is that um, as we see our goals or even our preconceived ideas about how God's promises should be fulfilled coming into conflict with God's greater plans, some of our dreams are going to have to die. That's not really um, cheerful news exactly, but it is Um, because God so often does this. 
He gives a promise, he allows it to die, and then he resurrects that promise in a bigger and better form. Um, So when this happens in your life, and if you can think of any kind of example in your life where that has happened, don't be discouraged because we don't shape God's promises for us. God's promises shape us. Just this um, fall, just this summer, um, this happened in the life of one of my dearest friends. Uh, she has lived in this, in this area in Portland for like 15 years. She moved here with her husband when they were newlyweds. And she wasn't here long before she met a friend who um, told her about Jesus and she came to faith. Her husband didn't. And so they raised two babies together for 15 years with her being... Um, Jesus just being her all, and her husband being very, very hardened against anything to do with religion, anything to do with God. And um, she was faithful and prayed for him all those years, but it just didn't seem like anything was happening. And um, we, were, we were talking about it this winter. God had just taken her through an especially rough season, but where he had been very close to her. And as we were talking and praying it just kind of became clear to her that like God was preparing her for something. She didn't quite know what. And as we were talking about her family situation, she goes, you know what? It's going to take something really, really big to turn my husband's heart towards God. And I wonder if that's what this is that I'm feeling is going to happen. I just have this feeling like something big and tumultuous is going to happen to us. And I'm going to be okay because I've got God with me. But this is really going to shake my husband. Um, I don't know what to do with that. But I guess I'll just have to, you know, wait and see. And sure enough, a couple months later, her husband lost his job um, with all the intel layoffs. And within three days, he'd made the determination that he wanted to uproot the family and move them across the country back to where they grew up. Now, she has spent 15 years putting down roots in her faith community, lots of friends and um, in the community. And for that, that was like just bam, bam, bam. Oh, you, you want to uproot our family and move across the country? But there was this sense inside of her of, Lord, is this what you were talking about? Is this what you were preparing me for? And she just made the commitment to say, okay, my husband wants to do this. I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to, I'm going to go with it. I don't know why, but for some reason, God's giving me faith to do this. And they weren't back in Alabama for longer than, I don't know, a couple weeks. And all of a sudden, I was seeing on Facebook, her husband was going to church. He'd given his life to Christ. Everything was completely different in his life. Now, what was it about? I mean, he had 15 years of a faithful wife telling him about God. Nothing made a dent in that. But for some reason, when all the pieces were in place, it all just kind of happened. And my friend told me, she goes, what would have happened if I would have held on to all of the things that I held dear here in Oregon? What would have happened if I would have dug in my heels and said, no, I'm not going? Because God had given her this promise of a faith community, of roots, of family, and that was a good promise. He had given that to her here. And then all of a sudden it feels like, you know, he's just like having to give it up, let it go. Um, but when you, when you sense God's calling in this, right, 
And when you're able to really release that to him and trust him with that, he has a tendency to resurrect those dreams into something even bigger. And she has no regrets. No regrets knowing that her husband is saved now. Um, So don't be discouraged. Anyway, have faith in those times. So the next... um, idea is that, and this kind of goes along with this, that God uses everything to accomplish his purposes. Even the times of waiting, the times that are good, the times that are bad, um, the people are his faithful followers, the people who are evil pagan kings. Um, God uses the times when everything seems to be moving in order, and he uses those times when nothing seems to be happening. Um, He is never not working. There is this really great story that just kind of came to mind as I was thinking about this, that Jesus, when he's healing on the Sabbath, um, he gets kind of, you know, tattled on about this. And he defends himself by saying, my father is always working and I am too. And so you need to know that, that even when it doesn't look like it, God is always looking, working. It's just that he doesn't always tell us what his plans are. And we don't always know what it is he's working on. Because we can't see what he's working on, we just kind of, you know, I don't know. And I love how the, the lesson talked about, they says, waiting means to trust that God is good even when we can't see it in the way we want it or expected. Our waiting and longing can become a tool that transforms us rather than an obstacle to happiness and fulfillment. Now, I had an illustration. I want you to think about it like this. So if I tell my son, hop in the car, I'm taking you someplace special, and he goes, oh, Chuck E. Cheese. Yes, awesome. But really what I had in the mind was the beach. There's going to come a point in our journey where my son thinks, wait, we're not traveling on roads I recognize. Where is Chuck E. Cheese? And why is this taking so long? Now, even if I talk to my t- six-year-old and I'm somehow able to get him to accept the fact that Chuck E. Cheese is no longer the destination, and he trusts me that a day at the beach is going to be much better. At this point, what is his only job? What would happen if he were to say, Mom, I know you got this covered, but I don't recognize any familiar landmarks around here. I really think that if you would just pull over and let me take the wheel for a little bit, I could get us going back in the right direction. Would it help for him to start obsessing about how long we've been traveling or how bored he is or how great Chuck E. Cheese is? Or could it be that the only thing that I expect from my son is to sit back and enjoy the time with me? Yes, it's going to take a couple hours. No, you don't know the way. But that's not your job. Your job is to enjoy being with me. God doesn't give us a turn-by-turn, mile-post-by-mile-post explanation of his plans. But you can be certain that it's not because he doesn't see, doesn't care, has forgotten about you in the backseat, or he's gotten lost. He's taking you someplace special. And he just wants you to talk with him and get to know him along the way. The last um, thing that kind of stood out for me from this lesson um, was kind of combined with, um, I'll give a little plug. 
So this summer I got to work on um, a Bible study writing team that is writing the, um, the lessons for we're going to have an experience season coming up. And so there's, you'll notice in your bulletins, there's this class that's called um, Tying Everything Together. It's like exploring great themes of the Bible. And what we're doing is we have these videos of themes from the Bible that are from the BibleProject.com. And so we have these major things like covenant and um, the one that I got to work on was image of God. And let me tell you that topic just really, really changed me studying that one. It really completely changed um, a lot of how I'm seeing faith and, and I hope if you guys um, take part in that, I hope it'll, it'll change you too, or just watch the video on it, because it kind of gives you an overall sense of that, you know, God's plans for us are bigger than what we expect, and it gives you more of a sense of what God's plans are for humanity, for the world. Um, and Pastor Jason talked about it this Sunday too. Our stories don't always make sense from a human perspective. But what I've come to see from all of these different bits and pieces coming together is that it's a heart of worship that is the fuel of faith. See, we may think that the defining factor in how we respond to situations is how trustworthy God is, or how difficult the trial is, or how strong our faith is. But I challenge you to step out of that paradigm and consider this. Whether your heart is motivated towards your satisfaction or his glory. This, I think, is really the fuel of faith. Not merely the knowledge of who God is, because that's really essential. That's step one. But in knowing God, he changes our hearts to bear his image, to be like his son. And that knowledge of who he is, that, that presence of him in us, drives us towards a relentless pursuit of his glory. In other words, a heart of worship. And that heart of worship gives us the fuel to press on in the face of trial, knowing that it's by our faith that God's glory is revealed in us. You see, when we aren't motivated in this way, when we're self-centered and driven to receive God's promises as a means towards self-satisfaction, then the time of waiting often becomes more than we can bear. And even when God's promises are fulfilled we have a really difficult time receiving what he's promised us. Because by this time we become bitter and resentful about how long we had to wait. We have a difficult time understanding what the fuss is all about, and we're reluctant to think or praise him. We think, why should God get glory from this situation? He's just doing what he said he would. He was simply fulfilling his obligation to me. But the challenge of waiting offers us a choice. Will we wait until the end of the line to give God the glory when his promises for us are fulfilled? Or will we choose to trust him in the waiting time when we're walking by faith and not by sight? The bigger picture is that we so often miss is that God uses all these situations for his glory. And the fact is he gets the glory 100% of the time. But when we trust him, he gets more glory. And I realize that that's a goal that sometimes is kind of like, I don't, I don't know, my heart, my heart just, I wish I felt that way, but, but I don't know if I do. But I want to tell you that one of the most 
meaningful times in my life was um, a couple years ago when I was in a really helpless time of suffering. And I had a friend who came to me and she said, honey, I know this is hard, but I see Christ in you. Even right now, when you feel like there is nothing that you can give to God that's of worth, nothing that you can do for him, he's having to do whatever you want for your you. But I see your love for him and your trust in his love for you. And that just makes me, that just, that just gives him glory. I know that he is honored in that. And for me, that, that, those words of encouragement just gave me fuel to press on. Because I knew that waiting was an honorable occupation. And that trusting him in suffering, that there was merit in that, that there was worth, that there's value in that. So wherever you are, or someday when you find yourself in that situation, I want you to know that it's okay to not like the suffering. It's okay to not like the waiting. But to know that that is a little blessing in the suffering that God gives you is knowing that his glory is revealed in you as you trust him. Father God, I just... um, I thank you for this lesson. I thank you for the example of Sarah and Abraham, and I thank you for what their picture of faith does to be able to um, encourage us as we move forward in life. Um, Again, I pray for our conversation today, God, and I pray that this message would um, form us and um, drive us towards a relentless pursuit of your glory.